very good. Shuffle them up. Okay, thank you, Eileen. First question today. Yesterday, I was meditating in the hall and had a vision. There was a staircase coming down from above the Buddha statue. Down the staircase came these beings with a yellow head and feet with blue and white striped clothes on. At the bottom of the staircase, they turned and went toward the teddy bears, where these jhanas in pajamas coming down the stairs, <laughs> jhanas in pajamas chasing teddy bears. <laughs> I think that could be right. <laughs> Charters in pajamas. <laughs> anyway, can you please explain why we can eat cheese and dark chocolates? Thank you. Actually, n- no, I can't explain it. It was just our tradition. Does not eating in the afternoons help with meditation? The Chocolate and the cheese is optional. You don't have to eat it. But anyway, these were just kind of exceptions. The chocolate, it was because they didn't have any chocolate in that time. And for the cheese, there was this um, exception. Ajahn Man, you know, he was teacher of Ajahn Chah. And apparently he told someone it's allowable. And of course, if Ajahn Man says it, in that fourth tradition, that's it. But what we can say, that if it's not specifically 100% black and white beyond any um, argument, if it's not banned, then it's allowed. So that's how it, how it works. So anyway, uh, it's not really... Ex- why it is allowed and why it's not. But then you've got other things like milk, soya, nut, soya milk, coconut milk, and you see that many of the monks and Anagarikas over in Bodhinyanas, they're allowed to eat, drink, sorry, coconut milk in the afternoon. And you know, Ajahn Bamali was saying, well, you know, that's, it's only can be banned because of some what the commentaries say. And I know Ajahn uh, Chah told me not to have that in the afternoon, but if that's what the monks want to eat, it's not totally banned, so you can't really say much about that. As for milk, that once there was this story of... uh, a man who's following the Buddha and offered all this milk you know, to every monk. There's a lot of monks there. And when he offered the milk to those monks, it was on a hot day. And then there was one of those monks who was supposed to be an ex-actor. He had a sense of humour and he said, oh, the monks are all quenched when they went and they slurped the 
uh, the, the milk. And being quenched was a synonym for being enlightened. So all the monks laughed and the Buddha said, you know, that's not the right thing to do, to, to make jokes about enlightenment. And so because of that, that was a story, but it led to a little rule in the monks' Vinaya. And what was really interesting, that it's very rare to be so hot in the morning time. It's usually the hottest part of the day is in the afternoon, and in the morning the monks can, eat any, uh, can drink sort of water or juices or just about uh, anything. So it's circumstantial evidence, but then maybe they could uh, have the milk in the afternoon. And that's, there's an argument for that. So all of these little things here, in the end, with what goes into the mouth, quite honestly, if you count up all the hours and days that I've been trying to research that and find an answer to that, and all the times people have asked questions about that, it's amounted to years. <laughs> and so you say, well look, if you've got a good reason to, you need to drink it, fine. Otherwise, don't. Yeah? Then, then how come the other two schools of thoughts, they can have meals all the way to their dinner as well? Yeah. yeah. Uh, that came about, as far as I know, is that some of them, they called it the northern tradition, and it was much colder in Tibet than it was in Sri Lanka. And so they made these little exceptions there. But, you ask, is it really necessary? And in the end, instead of actually trying to find out the reasons why, the reasons why not, you know, by looking through the texts, is, well, why do you want to do that? You know, when we were, at, we were in Thailand, that's where I grew up, and even in Sri Lanka, most of the time, you can go on arms round, and get enough rice and something else, and eat that. And it was always in the morning time. And even if the people came to the monastery, you'd keep your rice, and then they would bring the food. And that's more than enough in the morning time. But when we came over here to Australia, the monks, you know, we didn't have any nuns then, we did so much work in the morning. And the people couldn't get you know, from Perth to Serpentine, you know, uh, before you know, 10 or 10.30. It was just too far for them because they would get up, feed their husband and then come and cook for the monks or whatever it was. And so what happened was that they couldn't come early. So we wanted to have a later uh, lunch. But then to get a later lunch, we were working very hard in the morning. It didn't make any sense that we didn't have a breakfast. So that's when Ajahn Chakra started uh, initiating breakfasts in this monastery. Simply because that no one could actually come from town to feed us. But even that, now we're much better known and there's no more monks. There are people, and I just take my hat off, if I had a hat, sorry, that they're amazing when people, they get up so early in the morning to bring a breakfast for us. And during the range retreat, it's been a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday. And they come all the way from town and cook something for us. They get up really early, and 
when they go home, they go back to work afterwards. It's just amazing. So anyway, sometimes you're really inspired by people's generosity. And that's why the reasons why I get fat. <laughs> well, that's actually a serious point. They go and bring you something. And it's, you know, can you please eat this? And it's really hard to say no. But anyway, just what goes into a monk or a nun's mouth? Ooh, spent so much time arguing about that. And as my preceptor said, it's much more important to ask why it goes in the mouth, not whether it's allowable or not. Anyway, I am kind and giving to a certain extent. I am amazed and inspired seeing acts of kindness and giving of others that I myself would not have the thought to do. How can I cultivate this in myself? More kindness and giving, thank you. When you see it in others, please rejoice in their merits. And you get a big boost of energy. You share in that good karma. And then when you hang out with such people, you start doing such acts of giving, then you start to understand their power. And it grows on you. You know, it's... It's... You know that um, bottle of... Um, what's it called, of carrot juice you gave me today. That I shared that with Venerable Chanda. She had half, I had half. I enjoyed that much better that way than the day before when I drank it all myself. Sharing is amazing. And one of... I was... I think this was when I was going over to um, Singapore some time ago, uh, I think early this year, or maybe was it another trip, I'm not sure. But it, it must have been another trip, because the flight I was on was leaving just after midday. And so I could not get a proper meal. So, I shouldn't say this, but anyway, here we go. So what I, what I did, that some people were really smart, are giving me these um, dome vouchers. Dome is like a coffee shop, little restaurant which serves lunches before 12 noon. You get so many time of the day, maybe 11 o'clock or 10.30. And so I had these dome cards, and which people just donated, and my driver that day was Nicholas in the back there. And so I said, look, there's not enough time to get a proper lunch, so let's go to the Dome Cafe uh, to get something to eat. And so we went inside there, and to Nicholas's surprise, I said, I have these Dome cards, so I'm going to, um, with these Dome cards, to donate a lunch to you. He's donated lunches to me so many times. So Nicholas got a food donated by a monk. And I enjoyed that so much. Just like I enjoy opening the doors for you. <laughs> yeah, it is somehow or other, as a senior monk, you're not allowed to practice your own generosity. Yes, it is by speaking with you or you know, giving advice whenever I can. 
But there's something about giving, whether it's giving time, giving a smile, giving like a meal or something, which I get so much joy out of. These are the things which I remember. And so that's one of the reasons why you, you, know, you try your very best. And I might get criticised for that, but I really enjoyed giving that meal to you, Nicholas. And I won't forget that one. Of course, you know, he could do it himself, get his own meal. He's probably thought, no, I'm the one who's supposed to give to Ajahn Brahm. But no, I gave it to you. I thought it was nice. That's in, that kind of inspires you. It takes the giving to a different way, different level. And the last thing, I think I mentioned to you already about the Dalai Lama when I remember reading that, that, you know, he was, received a skirt from this poor person in a remote village in Tibet and a journalist just blew up and said, you can't do that, she needs it more than you do. And the Dalai Lama said, yes, but she needed to give it to me. And that's what I remember, that you, you needed to open the door to me, you know, in the hall over here this morning. And you recognize that, that people need to share. And that's the kindness and also the giving. And when you see acts of kindness, it's how people care for one another. They don't have to do that. But when they do, it's such a beautiful act. It creates this huge brightness in the world. That's one of the reasons why I was, I know, what do I, what do I need to do that for? They can get their own lunch. But then after a while you see that no, we need to give each one of us. Little things, just kindness. So anyway, that's... I love doing that. Dear Ajahn, wow, could you explain why certain foods are permitted after midday? <laughs> <laughs> so, and not another. Yeah, and this is another thing I found on these retreats and question time. This is totally different handwriting, a different person. But sometimes when one person sort of has an idea and writes a question, another one writes a similar question. And it's, what do they call that? It's not coincidence. It's as if, you know, when you are eating together or just in the same cottage or something, you tend to resonate together. And the same question comes up in each. It's a weird phenomena. I've seen that so many times. Dear Adjun, you mentioned a lot about what you eat after... No, no. <laughs> no, I made that up. <laughs> you mentioned a lot about letting go. How do I actually let go? Now, if that's the only thing which you learn on this retreat, it's been worth a million dollars, this retreat. Just the fact you understand what letting go is and how you do it. First answer to that question, you can't do letting go. Letting go is what happens when you don't do things. Sometimes I said, imagine you're in a driverless car. You know, it's already in there, your destination. You just sit there and enjoy the journey. That's why I say that sometimes when you go in aircraft, 
there is a good example of driverless cars. I may be in a rush, I have to get to the destination fast, or I may know the shortcuts. So I go and tell the pilot, don't fly over there, fly this way. Of course, I would never do that. I'd probably get arrested if I tried. But when you're in the aircraft, once you're on the plane, you don't have any choices about how the plane's going to go. You sit down there, look out the window and enjoy the journey. And you enjoy it because you you can't control anything from here on in. You have to let go. But more than that, on one such journey, it was in an Air Asia flight. I remember that and give credit where it's due. I'm contradicting the talk I gave for the Suter class again. <laughs> but on that flight, um, it was the flight magazine uh, in the pocket, so I took it out to have a look. And there was an article in there by one of their pilots. The future of aviation, according to this pilot's idea, especially the future of aircraft. And he predicted that in the future, in the cabin of the aircraft, there will only be two beings in that cabin. One will be the pilot, and the other being in the cockpit will be the dog. Just a pilot and the dog in the cockpit of a big, uh, was it Airbus 330 or whatever, I don't know, I forget now. And the job of the pilot, the only job of the pilot is to feed the dog. The only job of the dog is to bite the pilot if he touches anything. In other words, it'll all be just automatic program, just like you know those Google cars with no drivers in them. And he said that'd be much safer. The only reason they have a being in there is to make the passengers you know feel uh, not go anxious. There's nobody in there, but it'll all be automatic, much safer, faster reaction time. And so, imagine that you're a driverless car or an automatic aircraft. You can trust that when you let go, you don't make so many mistakes. It's much more peaceful. It's like you've gone to work and you work so hard and now you can sit back and just enjoy the journey. So those little metaphors can sometimes get you into the idea of what letting go must be. You don't do it, you just sit there and don't do anything. You drive this bus. And that also gives you so much rest. Sometimes you think, why do I always have to make all these decisions, you know, write all these emails, do all of this stuff and that stuff and something else in between. And then after a while, when you come onto meditation, You don't have to do anything. Okay, mind. Sit down, relax to the max. That was that saying. And I mean that, relax to the max. See how much more you can relax until there's no more relaxation to do. Dear Ajahn, 
on the topic of samsara rebirth. In your book, you mentioned the evidence of rebirth is obvious. Otherwise, we won't be here. <laughs> I'm struggling to understand this concept logic. Can it be proven? Yes. It's... I remember just... Somebody sent me this video of a philosophy professor somewhere in um, the US. And this philosophy professor said he'd reviewed, he wasn't a Buddhist, he was simply just a philosophy professor who just worshipped logic and reason. And he reviewed the evidence from Professor Ian Stevenson about beings or young boys and others who could recall previous lives. And he said the evidence was enough, was, uh, was enough cases, and there was evidence that had been really tested out, and you could not logically refute that evidence. And he said that to him, as trying to be objective, that was proof the rebirth actually happens. So you can remember your past lives, but people say you're just fantasizing. Or you might say you do um, see one person's being reborn, but that's just one case. If one person could be reborn, then why not all of us? Seems weird that it's just strange cases of one person, not everybody else. So he said, the main problem which people have with rebirth, they don't know how it can happen. How you can get from this place to that place, from a boy to a girl, to you know, any sort of um, difference. But he knows it does happen. One story for you. I can't stop telling stories. I'm sorry if I don't do all, the, all of the uh, questions. Because over here is one of the families who constantly support us and uh, when uh, the, uh, the wife became pregnant really looking after the pregnancy you know as happens here in Australia and she had an ultrasound about five days before the birth but in the space of those five days sort of the, the baby turned and it cut off its blood supply in the umbilical cord. So it was a stillbirth. And I did a funeral service for them, and it was done over... Uh, I went to the, uh, the chapel there for the funeral Buddhist service, and they named the kid Charlie. It was their first child. And I remember they had this little baby coffin, open coffin, and they leaned the baby coffin up, not so it would fall out, but just so he could get in the family photograph album. So Charlie was uh, basically born there, but just, oh, just looked like an ordinary baby, but it was dead. Now, these were Thai Buddhists, and they have this tradition. If such an event happens, they got a biro pen, and they just wrote a, not a line, they drew a line on the baby's heel. Just, you know, just maybe about two inches long. And then they just uh, covered up that, that line. 
see what happened next. And of course, there was nothing physically wrong with the woman, it was just a bit of bad fortune. So she soon became pregnant again, and this time she said the medical fraternity really gave extra attention, and so it was a very um, healthy birth. And the next kid, which she gave birth to, on the same foot has a birthmark, a line, exactly where they drew it. And that's pretty convincing. And the other interesting thing about that case, they named the new kid Annie. It was a girl. And that girl, you know, it, the parents keep bringing their kids to the temple. You sort of see them grow up. And Annie, she was really rough with the other young girls. She was what we call the tomboy. And it's quite obvious why, where she got those male characteristics from because she was a boy in her previous life. And then, but after about six or seven, that's usually the time, then she developed the more affinity for other girls. And I often say that this is often what happens. If something happens, if, if you get uh, bumped off a plane journey because they overbooked, what happens? You get priority on the next plane the next aircraft, and you also get an upgrade. <laughs> From a boy to a girl? <laughs> I'm just making fun there. But that's a true story. So anyway, there's... And sometimes people say, well look, and it's a good point, there are more people alive on earth today than probably have ever died. Where did they all come from? The human population always is always increasing. So where did all those new, new births come from? And the answer is pretty obvious when you think about it. Because, you know, in Buddhism, people get reborn as humans from so many different realms. You know, from the realms of the animals in the, the jungles, the, you know, the lions, the tigers and stuff. Where do you think all those hell's angels came from? <laughs> okay, from the jungles. There were gorillas before. <laughs> anyway. Dear Ajahn, you mentioned that enlightened beings do not reincarnate, they vanish. Why is this a good thing? Crikey. Otherwise there'll be too many people on the earth and even the, the hell's angels won't get a spot in a nice mother's womb. Especially when beings fight for their lives. And I mentioned that. If, I, if one of you was given this wonderful news that you've won this prize from China Grove, you're going to go to LA next week, you want to go earlier. Because you know, it's much not, well, it's not really that much nicer. But if you know where you're going to get reborn, and it's a beautiful place, sometimes, why are you afraid? Some people are afraid of um, dying because they don't know what's going to happen next. And I often thought about this, you know, because you know, I was brought up in Christianity. It, if you really are a devout Christian, it must be very, very, very frightening. 
this because in that Christianity it's like you are uh, going to be judged and it's do you get frightened of doing a, like a driving test or doing you know your kids doing their um, entry to university exams and stuff all those exams you can do again if you fail but these ones at the end of your life if you're a Christian if you pass phew, you can go to heaven forever if you fail Ooh, that's hell. Not just for 10 years or 100 years, for eons. That can be pretty scary. If you believe like that and you get scary or anxious at an ordinary test, how, how would that feel? So that's why sometimes, how many of you are so good, you don't have any fear that you, you've got some bad karma which might come up when you die? You've gone really quiet now. <laughs> Maybe I've scared you. <laughs> no, because the nice thing about this Buddhism, it's up to you. You can forgive yourself. So it's, it's much more, uh, not so much easy, but much more um, compassionate. Oh my goodness. It's amazing. Totally different writing. What happens when a being attains Nibbana? Is a being gone? Same as the other one. Or does the... Hang on. The being exists in the jhana states because the thought of the being gone for good upon Nibbana does not seem appealing. Thank you, Ajahn. Once you know just how much suffering there is in life, and I said even that nun Wajira asked by uh, Mara, said, who is that? And she replied, it's a beautiful statement, it's repeated elsewhere but not as clear. She said, how it feels being an enlightened bhikkhuni. It's just experiencing Suffering arising, suffering staying, and suffering going. That's it. Because even what other people call happiness, she knows is an irritation. What is the happiest moments you know you you've had with these five senses? You may think that's happiness. But when you've tasted sort of the, the bliss which occurs when all those five senses disappear temporarily in a jhana, that's far more attractive. And it makes the blisses which you experience in life, in the five senses, it just makes them, it's, it's suffering. There's much better stuff than that. It's one of the reasons why people experience those things of the jhanas you do tend to lose your hair and start ordaining. Because the world does not have any, any much attraction or meaning for you compared to the, the bliss of the, the deep meditations. And look, again, I'm talking the local language. Yes, you may think I'm a monk and a priest and shouldn't talk like this. 
for those deep meditations it's bliss better than orgasm and sex I'm using my memory because I've been a good monk for so many years and I'm not for my life as a monk but I do remember just you know just having girlfriends and sleeping with them not at the same time (laughs) (laughs) and you know what I don't mind saying this because I it's nice to experience that first in my life and then experience what the deep meditations are. And it was basically the comparison meant that that was the end of those relationships. This is blissful and peaceful, lasts much longer. So that's one of the reasons why just even the jhanas are far more attractive than anything else. And then eventually, once those jhanas happen, even the bliss of those places which you go to in jhana, it's nothing like when everything ceases. The cessation of perception and feeling. Nibbana. That's the, that's the best. So why do they do that? It doesn't sound attractive if you haven't known those jhanas. Once you know those jhanas, you've had experience of them, and the insight based on that experience, says, oh, this is wonderful. Anyway, thank you so much for teaching me about self-care and the permission to do nothing, which is so different from what I was brought up, where self-care is thought to be selfish and doing nothing is laziness. And even like thinking, I remember as a kid in school, Peter, what do you think about that? Nothing. And I was told off for that. You could have got into deep meditation much earlier if when the teacher said, you think nothing about that? Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Because <laughs> <laughs> honestly, in academia, we worship thinking. What about something more than that. If you know more than that, of course you'll worship that. And no worship, I mean you find worth in it. And the peace and kindness. It's much more delicious. Do you have any advice, tips on how to prioritize self-care and meditation when I return to Singapore, when there are many competing priorities, responsibilities? You're the one who can set your priorities and your responsibilities. It may mean that there's some things which you don't have the time to do. And that's, that's one of the problems. But if you, you know, do nothing in your house, then somebody comes up and asks you, what are you doing? Say nothing. Oh, please come and help me. They think doing nothing means you're free to do something else. So instead of that, have these little excuses. You know, they see you sitting in the garden. What are you doing? You, you say things like, I'm watching the trees grow. <laughs> in other words, because people don't appreciate what nothing is and how beautiful and wonderful it is. It's not laziness at all. How difficult is it to do nothing? It's one of the hardest things you've ever done. It should be the simplest. To sit here and don't think about this or think about that, but just... Just be here. And if you can do that, you'll find for yourself how beautiful, like 
nothing is. It's real emptiness. Where you don't want to improve anything. You, want to, you can improve something later on if you wish. But right now when you're meditating, the garden is as beautiful as it can be. It's right here, right now. You appreciate it in this moment, as it is. And it gets more beautiful, just the way you perceive it that way. So anyway, yeah, there are competing priorities, responsibilities, but it depends on your age. If you've already retired, then take it easy more. You've done your responsibilities and duties. So how about doing those responsibilities and duties as a Buddhist? I don't mean going to temple and doing all the chanting and the cleaning and stuff. I mean just sitting down quietly in your room, letting go. You know that is a wonderful thing you can give to others. They get inspired by that. I do remember talking with, again, Dr. K. Sudamananda about people who ordain as monks and nuns. And they call it renunciation. And I told him that all those people, all those parents who have a child who wants to be ordained, and when that ceremony actually happens, I often say that all of the relations are just so inspired that this young man becomes a monk. Everybody is inspired and excited, except the parents themselves. They said they really support people becoming monks or nuns as long as it's not their son or their daughter. I don't know why they say that. It's a beautiful thing to do. And, well, no more stories. And, okay, well, just one of the monks, that's Renonita. When he wanted to become a monk, his parents weren't all that keen on it, but they let him come anyway. And after he became a, a, a monk, his father had a heart attack, and so, and so he went to see his dad. Uh, his dad didn't make it, he died. And, but when he asked to go over there to help out, they said, yes, you can come to Norway, but you have to wear lay clothes. And so we can supply them for you. And he showed me the letter, and I said, please reply to your, I think, elder brother. Please reply to him that it's either these robes or naked. Take your choice. <laughs> Be firm. So he went there in his robes and I got this wonderful letter from his elder brother later on. Thank you Ajahn Brahm for allowing my younger brother to be a monk. He was just an amazing resource for us. We were all falling apart because our dad had died. Venerable Nito just kept us all together. We never realized you know, what he was up to, meditating. Now we know. And I want you to know, Ajahn Brahm, he has our full support. You know, staying as a monk forever. And I kind of really appreciate that. Uh, okay, I've done that one. Okay, yeah. Okay, let's try some more. Why are there different tunes to the same chanting? Sri Lankan, Thai and Burmese. If there was not difference in those charts or different tunes, life would be very boring. You know, have you had rice? 
how many different types of rice are there? There's white rice, there's brown rice, there's yellow rice. There's... When I was a young monk, we only had white rice. And now it's all sorts of colours. I don't know if... Uh, is it like things are added into them? I don't ask. Here, red rice, white rice, yellow rice, sometimes multicoloured rice. It's just sometimes variety, they say it's the spice of life, but sometimes the, I can't take too much spice in my food. So anyway, Sri Lankan Thai Burmese. When I was thinking about that, that yes, there is a different sort of sounds, like in Sri Lanka, you do the Namatasa, you don't say Namatasa, you say Namatasa. And the Burmese have a different way of pronouncing these words. But there was that uh, case, I know the man, uh, he actually came to one of our conferences once, Dhammaruwan, when he was about a little boy. You know, he, had, he could chant all these amazing um, Pirita chants in Pali, but there was nothing like the Sri Lankan monks chanted. Straight away, you know, even though he was only about four or five years of old when he started his chants, he couldn't have learned these by listening to the radio or the monks in Sri Lanka at the time, because the Sri Lankan monks never chanted like that. It was much more just like the, please excuse me, the Westerners chant. You know, because this is actually how we feel it should be chanted. When I heard that, again, it was a goosebumps. And of course that was a young man who recalled his past lives. And he said, that's where he got this chanting from, a monk, many, many years ago. When he came to the conference, I remember just talking to him and trying to get more information out of him. And I said, well, who was you then? He said, yeah, I was a monk, and it was in the time of Buddha Gosa. That really made me interested. Oh, yeah, what was Buddha Gosa like? And uh, trying to get more information about his previous life. It was fascinating. He was answering a few of my questions, and then somebody else asked a question. And that actually broke that, that uh, stream of remembrance. But anyway, it was fascinating. His chanting was different than any Sri Lankan monk I've ever heard. It was like pure chanting and perfect memory. Even when I do the chants, sometimes I forget something. And that's why we do chants with many monks. So when I forget something, I can soon sort of recover. <laughs> Once, remember, I, this true story, doing a, ma a marriage blessing for a couple. And I got so tired, you know, I've been doing too much. And by mistake, I did the funeral chants. <laughs> <laughs> I've told that story many times, but I never told the couple. They, st <laughs> they still don't know. And they're still happily married. <laughs> Weird. Mistakes do happen. On the topic of extolled, it's expressing gratitude openly or private equal to extol. Yeah, it does. He said, that can sometimes be a conflict. I praised you, but I never praised you. We do the same things. That's not fair. It does lead to conflict. But then, sometimes I like... Pra Praise, because when you praise somebody, 
it encourages them to do it again. It encourages more people to do the good things again. And the problem is, you know, with the praise, you know, sometimes I say, Venerable Chanda, you're a wonderful bhikkhuni, well done. And you say, oh, that's nothing, that's just what I do. It's amazing just how we reject praise. But if I say, Venerable Chanda, you're very lazy, and you, you don't get up in time or something, say, why are you saying that to me? It's very hard to receive criticism. But it's, sorry, no, sorry, it's the other way around. We accept criticism. We make a big personal problem about it. But praise, we say, no, 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 that's usual. So thank you for all those people who've, who've fed me and who have um, opened doors for me, given me breakfast and given me, um, what's it called, carriages. They say, oh, that's nothing, that's just we're happy to help you. No, thank you. But then when I say the, uh, the carriages was cold or something, it's supposed to be cold, and then people get really offended. The carrot juice had too many carrots in it. <laughs> <laughs> so sometimes we accept criticism when we just say, oh no, no, that's just ordinary, we can't make things perfect. We should, it's much better to accept more praise and criticism, I think. Dear Ajahn Brahm, thank you for your humour and wisdom. I wonder why my heartbeat is high, 75 during most of my meditation session. My heartbeat is normally 50 to 55. Uh, makes the sessions intense and painful. You might join and relax to the max. And I don't understand the last bit of it. But usually the heartbeat goes down in meditation. And Sometimes that's, I remember just this, uh, going to give blood once with another monk, a new monk. And, you know, they checked my blood pressure, oh, it's actually blood pressure, and not really the heartbeat. And it was normal. They checked the other monks, and it had actually gone high. And they said, and they said your uh, heartbeat is abnormally high. No, the other way around, sorry. Abnormally low. He said, what have you been doing? And they looked at him with his brown robes and bald head. You haven't been meditating, have you? Because many people know that meditation does affect your blood pressure. And it usually relaxes it and your heartbeat goes down. But there is a time sometimes when you're meditating, when you get some really deep meditation states... And when those deep meditation states come up, sometimes your heart does beat. You see a nimitta, boom, 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 boom. And it can sort of increase. But that's just um, the nature of you getting too excited. Usually, relax to the max, let go. I trust my body, it knows what to do. It will do it no trouble. So that's why relax to the max is the best. You know, once we had somebody here on retreat a few years ago and he was from Italy and when he was meditating he came up to me and told me he had his amazing nimittas and it was uh, 
weird ones, but I was trying to find out, well, you know, he asked, what were they? And I said, you know, it could be something from your past life. Sometimes that happens. And then he told me what they were. And some months later, I was in London on the underground train. And somebody was asking me about Buddhism and reincarnation. Do you believe in that? And I told a story about this Italian man. He said the first experience he had in his nimitta that was of a piece of spaghetti, strata spaghetti. <laughs> PJ, stop. <laughs> stop making faces <laughs> A piece of spaghetti. The second experience was a piece of macaroni. It was obvious. He was recollecting his past lives. <laughs> when I told that in his... I don't know if you've been in the underground in London, but when I was there, it wasn't like packed, but there was lots of people in there. And when I said that joke, I looked up, and so many of the passengers in there were either chuckling or they were just, oh, no. <laughs> They're not, they were pretending not to listen, but, you know, they were reading a newspaper or they were looking at their iPhone, but they were listening as well. <laughs> I think I did a lot for the letting people understand what Buddhism really is. <laughs> Oops. This is one same question. Oh, it's on two sides. Dear Ajahn, oops. Please help. As a Christian, I'm in trouble now. I took a lot of delight and comfort in the idea of God, a divine companion who will be with me in good and bad times. I lost faith in that God as I couldn't make sense of how he could allow bad things to happen in this world. In Buddhism, I feel the loneliness of not having a divine companion. I try to cheer myself up by saying, but we are all one. There is no separation between me and others. But that falls flat and I feel a cold loneliness. Trying to be a stream winner is my solution. Between now and then, could you give me any encouragement and will stream winning help? Of course it helps. And then eventually you will find it's not that we're all one, we're all none. <laughs> I don't mean we're all nuns. <laughs> I mean just... And you can still have so much happiness. What really protects you is your good karma. That's a weird thing. But I know that because you do lots and lots of good things in life, that nothing can really go wrong. You become a good person. And not even animals want to harm good people. And we have all these daughters. Look, I think you can understand I'm a pretty good monk. Remember this one time when these... Oh, it happened many times. I'll tell it in brief. It's in one of the books, if I can remember where it is. But, you know, we were having a ceremony in a city centre and I was ordering all the chairs and they bought the wrong chairs and so I asked them to re replace them and these were Aussie people and the Aussie people, the car the, not the car, the lorry uh, truck uh, turned the corner and it was still travelling at maybe 30-40 kilometres an hour and one of the Aussie workers jumped out of the cab 
and he had his fist up where's the bloke in charge I want the bloke in charge so I walked out to him and said I am the bloke in charge and he put his fist right in front of my nose you could see his eyes they were wide and worse than that I didn't mind that but what I didn't like was actually uh, he was so close to me that I was inhaling his breath which was full of beer that's the most beer I've imbibed since I've become a monk. Because <laughs> what had happened, they'd already knocked off work. It was a Friday afternoon, they were down the pub starting their weekend. And this Buddhist wanted their chairs changed. There was a lot of people watching me. Not one of them helped. <laughs> That's, so I was kind of stunned. What's going to happen? A big Aussie, much bigger than me, fist in front of me there. But the one thing I noticed, I know how to not to react. I was just really peaceful. Not talking, not being afraid. Just being calm and not worried, no anxiety in me. And that guy couldn't do anything. He was stuck there. And I realised that, and I actually enjoyed that. You know, I had full power over him. And he was just stuck there. And then in the two or three minutes it took for the, the truck to actually to park, and one of the other workers come out. The other worker just put his hand on this guy's shoulder and said, come on, we'll unload the chairs. And I said, yeah, I'll come and help you. And that was the end of it. And as, to me, I mean, these experiences are real, not exaggerated. And how to, if you're a good person, people can't hurt you. So you don't actually need um, to have a divine being try and protect you. Or you need to host, have divine wisdom and kindness. That's far more protective of you. And you can do that pretty easy. And I think you all know that, that some years ago I did a six-month retreat when I never saw any other human being for six months, let alone talk to anybody. Six months in a cottage, uh, sorry, in a hut down in Bodhinyana, not the cave, that wasn't built yet. I just staying there for five months, six months, and people said, weren't you lonely? I said, of course not. I was with my best friend all the time. Me. If you are your best friend and you're kind to yourself, you're forgiving and compassionate, then staying by yourself is like staying with your best friend. We had a wonderful time together. That's how you overcome loneliness. I, I so want to get to the jhanas. Oh my goodness, that's no way then. What you write and say about this is inspiring. How does my striving to stay focused on each breath to achieve stage four in my meditation fit with your teachings around letting go? You can strive as long as you like, but you just get tense. And after a while you'll give up. Remember what I said, how do I keep the water still? You put it down. You let it go. It becomes still all by itself. How do you want to get into a jhana? This was one of the stories of Ajahn Chah. Oh my goodness. This question. 
I don't know who wrote that question, but that is deep. <laughs> but, uh, anyway, with Ajahn Chah, he told this amazing story, and I never believed it. I forgot about it for years. He said his monastery was a mango orchard, and those mangoes were planted by the Buddha, he said. And they're all ripe, and there's thousands of them, and they're so juicy mangoes, but you can't get those mangoes the normal way. Throw a stick up, you'll miss. Shake the tree, nothing will fall. Get a ladder, you can't reach them. There's only one way to get a mango from the tree planted by the Buddha. And that is to sit perfectly still. Hold out your hand, and a mango will fall into it. To me, I thought that Ajahn Chah was wrong. That can't happen. But only later on, when you understand how the mind works and how the Buddha taught, as well as Ajahn Chah, that's how you get these beautiful jhanas. You sit perfectly still. Hold out your hand. It's like the kindness. Don't forget the kindness. You open the door of your heart. Open your hand out. And the jhanas just fall in. It's weird, but that's how it happens. So if you want to get a jhana, stop trying. Sit perfectly still. Have kindness in your heart. And then the jhanas will come automatically. Can you please tell us a real ghost story? <laughs> Sorry? It's the last story. Okay. Can we please um, dim the lights? <laughs> A real one. Okay. Scary one. Look, there's two ghost stories I can tell you. The one, I think I've already told you the one. The one with the red string around the wrist. Okay, this is the first. I'll tell two. One which is it's real, but a little bit scary. And the second one is a nice one. <coughs> Both real. This was in Sirivat Hospital in Thailand. Big hospital. Yeah. <laughs> Sirivat Hospital. And anyway, it was uh, early in the morning. One of the doctors there had finished his evening, his night shift, was in the elevator, in the lift, going to uh, where the car park was to get in his car and go home. In the elevator, there was a witness to this. It was uh, a nurse who'd also just finished her shift. And as they were going down to the, um, the car park. The elevator stopped, the doors opened, and the doctor freaked out. And he pushed the close the door button as fast as he could. And the nurse was just kind of offended. There was a patient outside trying to get in. Why did you do that? The patient's got as much right to use the lifts as we have. And the doctor said, yes, 
that was one of my patients who died last night. That wasn't a human being, that was a ghost. Are you sure, said the nurse? said, yes, because in Thailand when somebody dies they try a red string around their, their wrists to indicate that they have died. And that's when the nurse said, I've got a red string too. <laughs> Does that mean I can't be in the lift? <laughs> that poor doctor had a ghost inside and a ghost outside. <laughs> and that's the story the doctor said because the other medical staff found him fainted on the floor of the lift. He just went unconscious seeing that. And they checked up on him and those two people that you know, he gave a good description of them and it was true. One of his patients outside and that nurse, she, actually she died uh, in her car going to work that morning in the Bangkok traffic. It was absolutely true. Anyway, that's a scary one, but a very nice one. This was here in Perth, in Nolamara. There was one of my, one of the disciples there. I'll even let you know his name. It's in one of the books. It's a beautiful story. His name was Peter Sale. And he was uh, one of these rangers who would work for the local council, making sure that everything was done appropriately. And he said that uh, he lived alone in his house over in Nala Way. I've been to visit it many times. And he said in the middle of the night, he had a feeling that there was something strange. So he turned on his bedside uh, light and he looked up and on the end of his bed, just you know, standing up, was his mum, his mother. And he knew that his mother lived in Essex in, in UK. And there was his mother standing up. And he said it wasn't just hazy, it was just like she was there, like a real body with the hair and everything else, all the clothes. But the thing which struck his attention was his mother's smile. It was a smile of your mum's love. And he said it was so beautiful. And what was important to him was that he knew his mum was over in the other side of the world from Perth. He realised his mum must have died. And that what he was looking at was a ghost. The ghost looked like a real person. You couldn't make any distinction between a real person and the ghost of his mum. But he was not scared at all. He was just so happy he realised his mum must have died. And his mum came to see him and was smiling, this beautiful mother's loving smile towards her son. And he enjoyed every second of that. Even though he knew she had died, they were staring at each other in silence until after five or six minutes, his mum just faded away, just like immaterialised, dissolved. And he had so much intense gratitude for that. My mother came to see me. I didn't have a chance to see her before she died, so she came to see me. And then 
phoned, no, the next thing he did, he told me, he was English, like a Londoner like me. So he did what all English people are conditioned to do in such events, made himself a cup of tea. <laughs> As an aside, you know, Ajahn Chah visited England, and when he came back, we asked him, did you learn any words in English? And he said, yes, only one. You know, he said it in Thai, just one word in English. What's that? You know what word he learned? Cup of tea. <laughs> cup of tea. That's the only English he picked up, cup of tea. <laughs> so anyway, when he had his cup of tea, sipping it, that's when the telephone rang. It's his sister over in UK. Pete, got some bad news for you. Yes, I know, Mum's died. How the heck do you know that? You've just come back from the hospital. And that's when Pete said, she's just spent the last five or six minutes with me as a spirit. My mum came to see me one last time. And it was just, five or six, not a flash, but long and loving. And he wouldn't have missed that for the world. So some ghost stories are wonderful. When I tell that story that many of you, during COVID time, you can't travel so much and so you miss it when one of your relations passes away. But sometimes, if you can be peaceful and open, sometimes they can come and see you. That was actually just real. Sometimes this happens when you're dreaming or something. You dream with your partner or your, your mother, father, or your little... Um, uh, bird. And when you do that, you know, they just come to say goodbye. And it's beautiful. You see, one last time. Sadhu. Okay. We're getting close. There's only three left this time. So, we'll do it again tomorrow. Yeah. 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 Does that have a, does that give you an indication of where they might Oh no. No. Because that's when a person dies. That rebirth is not straight away. And sometimes this is just other person's like spirit. Just a mind my body just coming to visit, you know, before they take rebirth somewhere else. But if you were enlightened you couldn't Indeed. So if you don't see um, Ayachanda when she passes away, that must mean that she was enlightened. <laughs> oh, God down. <laughs> no. I don't know if I have the idea of going down, because when I... Do, oh, I'm going over again. When I do funeral... So I've been doing the funeral services for years, and in all the funeral parlours over uh, in Australia... They either go horizontal through the curtains, or most of the time they go down. You press a button and the coffin just descends a little bit. When they were doing these more chapels, I asked them, can you please, you know, have, I know it costs a bit more money, have the coffin going up. <laughs> and then you press the, I press the button, do the charting, and the coffin goes up. Wouldn't that be just more inspiring? <laughs> it's too expensive. Sorry? The bottom of the coffin has to be very strong. Yeah, very strong, yeah. Well, that's easy enough to do.
But anyway, just, you know, whenever you bury someone, you go down. And then the ceremony goes down. And that's not going to be inspiring for people, but imagine it goes up. Wow, and you have this beautiful, heavenly music and dry ice. And the people go, oh, yes, how wonderful it was. Sometimes you see these um, open coffins, and sometimes you see the person there, they, they make you smile. And sometimes you go and see them, oh, they're smiling. And there's that story that the, the, the wife couldn't really sort of face seeing her husband, so sent her son up, and how is he in there? And uh, the son came back and said, oh, he's smiling. And the wife said, can you please uh, check with the funeral director, it's, it's the right person. Okay, that's it. I'm getting too tired. Okay. So thank you again for listening. And we'll see you. Have a nice evening or sleep, whatever. And I'll see you tomorrow.